tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The fatality count is closing in on the 100 mark as teams scour the burned-out areas of Lahaina. Hilton Rathel is head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association of Hawaii. We talked to him Friday afternoon about the snapshot of providing care to those on Maui in need both physically and mentally. This weekend, Kaiser began offering a mobile health care van to provide free service. Um, medical clinics providing sports services are also uh, more readily becoming available. This is the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history, with 96 deaths surpassing the California campfire tragedy in 2018 that killed 85. At no time was Maui's health care system overwhelmed during the fire, but the casualty counts expected to rise as teams have only cleared 3% of the burned-out area. Here's Rachel. What is unfortunate, it appears that we're going to have more deaths than we actually have injuries. And normally, when you have a disaster or an event, you have a lot more injuries than you do deaths. And unfortunately, it looks like it's the other way around this time because we have a very finite number of people in our hospitals. As of today, we have about 14 people in our hospitals who have been directly injured or burnt as a result of the fires. There have been a number of people who have had minor injuries or less severe injuries who have been treated and released from the hospital. So, but as of today, we have about 14 people in our hospitals as a direct result of the fires. That's both on Maui and on Oahu. So our healthcare system, in terms of the actual fire itself, and we do have people with some very severe burns in the burn unit at Straw, for example, and they will it will be weeks or months of recovery for those individuals but fortunately it is a small number of individuals relatively speaking what we're doing now is focusing on taking care of the community we have a lot of people who are displaced obviously we have a lot of people there as part of that area that was not directly impacted by the fire in terms of the fire itself but they don't have any utilities so you have people in their homes with no cellular connection, they don't have any electricity, they don't have any water, but they don't want to leave their homes, which is understandable. So you've got people who were displaced by the fire, and then other people, because their actual buildings burnt or damaged, and then there are other parts of the immediate community where the physical buildings are okay, they just don't have any services. So we are working with the state federal and county agencies as a healthcare organization to coordinate healthcare response. We have people on the ground from as of, well actually since throughout the whole, throughout this whole period, there was a clinic that was destroyed. There, there were some initial reports that the Dallas Center was destroyed and that was found not to be true so the Dallas Center was not destroyed. There was a pharmacy that was burnt, damaged as well. People have been displaced. There are people in shelters. There are people who have gone to other parts of Maui. People have left the island. A lot of the tourists obviously have left. I'm talking primarily about the residents. And so we're working with the payers. We're working with the doctor's offices. We're working with our hospitals to ensure that people's needs are met. You know, for example, if you have someone who needs their medications to be refrigerated, if they're living in the house, but the house is intact, but they don't have power, then they don't have refrigeration. So they need ice and coolers. So we're working with state and county agencies to set up pods or points where people can go to get maybe fuel for a generator. They could get ice, maybe they can get food. So those efforts are being coordinated uh, right now. And there are clinics, there is, uh, Kaiser has a mobile van over there. Ohana Pacific actually has people on the ground, doctors and nurses, so they've sent up an, an urgent care center. 
We have space that we can use, additional space we can use. We have tents coming in to set up temporary shelters. So there is an incredible outpouring of support to ensure that from a healthcare perspective that there is access to doctors, nurses, counselors um, in that immediate area for people who can't travel and for other parts of Maui for people who have been displaced by the fire. We did see the alert from the state health department, you know, urging people that if residents are allowed to go back into an area, you know, that has been devastated to take the precautions, wear masks, gloves, you don't want anyone to get hurt or get sick in the process of returning to some of those burnout areas. Yeah, that is a real concern because there is, could be broken glass, there could be nails in um in building materials, you know, as people trying to sort through their burnt homes, trying to find any possessions that may have survived. You know, there's no power at this point in time, so we don't have to worry about power. But when power comes back on, we need to be very, very mindful if there are down power lines. So there are a number of potential risks and hazards. People could trip over things. People could get cuts. They could inhale, you know, dust particles. So there are a lot of things that people should be concerned about as they move back into these areas. You know, in the water, there's sunken boats. So there's concern about oil, gas, diesel. So there is a containment area. The Coast Guard has set up a containment area where all the non-boats that have sunk or, or are have been damaged. So that's been contained. But unfortunately, there's a number of hazards. It's going to take a while to remove all the boats, for example, from the harbour. There'll be take a while to remove all the burnt vehicles, all the damaged buildings. Um, That's a lot of material to move and dispose of before the rebuilding process can begin. Can you give us a sense on the mortuary space at all? You know, because we've been in contact with federal officials and we've got teams believed to be on the ground, you know, assisting with the state and county in actually the removal and the identification of those who were caught up in the fire. So unfortunately, because of the number of deaths, that number is expected to climb even higher because we don't know if there are bodies in some of the boats, for example. We don't know if there's more bodies in car, burnt out cars, burnt out houses, or on the side of the road as people tried to flee. So we do expect that death count to go up. The uh, Maui mortuary is at or beyond capacity already. So the State Department of Health is moving refrigerated vans into the area so that bodies can be stored in refrigerated vans. We have shipped body bags across to Maui and there are mortuary teams, personnel being flown in. Uh, There's a shortage of x-ray techs because the decision was made by the state to x-ray all the bodies and so that's putting a lot of demand on x-ray techs so the callers went actually for x-ray techs to assist in this process and uh, we have people that have gone to Maui to uh, as x-ray techs so unfortunately there is a and then there's the you know identification of all the bodies if they're visitors if they're locals and then the the burial or cremation of uh, the remains once the medical examiners have completed that. So unfortunately, there is a a material amount of work um, to be done to appropriately take care of uh, those individuals who did lose their lives. And then there's, you know, when when you've got a fire that this is intense, and we have reports that fiberglass was, uh, the fire was so intense, the fiberglass was burnt off the hulls of boats that one of the uh, fire trucks had the glass, uh, the actual glass melted. So it was incredibly intense. And 
what that could mean for humans is that there could be very little left, if anything, of some individuals. So we could be, unfortunately, talking about, you know, bone fragments, teeth being used, you know, to help try and identify individuals. It's just an incredible tragedy. And, you know, we know that so many people are working on the ground to help the people who need medical care right now uh, and then to just provide some compassion to those families who lost loved ones. Yeah, this is the what the good news in this is that there is an overwhelming, almost overwhelming amount of support from the federal. The HHS secretary has just announced a federal disaster for the state of Hawaii because of the fire um, for a couple of months, if I remember the dates correctly, for at least a couple of months. And then FEMA has teams on the ground. They're bringing in additional personnel. All of the counties are standing by, willing to support. There are fire personnel, police personnel from Oahu that have already gone across to Maui to support the efforts over there. So there's been an incredible amount of support. This is so fresh that the challenge right now is coordinating all of that. Hilton Rachel is head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, and throughout the pandemic, he was a touchstone. And when we asked about the snapshot of COVID, he expressed concern that right now there are about 100 COVID cases in the hospital, the highest since September of last year. He cautioned that Maui could see a spike in COVID cases as people may be in close quarters and may be reaching out to each other to uh, physically hug and comfort each other. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. This Saturday, HPR presents Keilana. This in-person event is part of our HPR's Indie 808 Performance Series. Experience this exclusive set at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. Several evacuation and rescue teams are on the ground in Maui to help with recovery efforts there. One of them is Project Dynamo, a veteran-led nonprofit and rescue organization whose air and ground team is participating in what they're calling Operation Ohana Safe. Uh, Brian Stern is the founder and CEO of Project Dynamo. He's a U.S. Army and Navy combat veteran with over 25 years of experience in hostage rescue and counterterrorism or operations. He talked to the Conversations Russell Subiano this morning about his experience on Maui so far. We got here Thursday night, and we're doing operations Thursday morning. 
We've been doing air operations, partnered with Air Maui, who have been awesome. They were kind enough to kind of uh, donate their pilots and choppers to, to us to do rescues and for humanitarian aid. And then we also did a bunch of ground operations going from Kapalua. We would fly into Kapalua and then make our way into, into the affected area. So we've been all over the place. We've been doing a lot here. From what you've observed, how are relief and recovery efforts going? I know your, your, your mission there is two-part. I know it's, it's recovery and evacuation, but I also know you're bringing aid to the people there as well. Yeah, we're a search and rescue organization, first and foremost. Humanitarian aid is, is a secondary priority that we, of course, do as well. This is actually only our second natural disaster. We work usually in war zones like Afghanistan or Ukraine. Sudan and other places like that. But we're really good at projecting force, which is, I think, been a challenge here in Maui. You know, I mean, we, we've been zipping around and flying around and doing all kinds of stuff in helicopters. I haven't really seen any department, you know, I haven't seen any Blackhawks or Chinooks flying around. I'm not saying that they're not here, but we haven't seen them. And we've been kind of all over the place. So it, it's just a testament to, from a dynamo perspective of what we're able to do that government sometimes struggles with, or at least struggles with in a timely manner. They figure it out in the end, but, you know, where we can get boots on ground pretty much anywhere as fast as an airplane can take us. We don't have any bureaucracy. So what I haven't seen is 10,000, 15,000, 30,000 National Guard guys or Army guys or Navy sailors and Marines from either Big Island or from the mainland, you know, crawling around in the rubble. We haven't seen that is what we haven't seen. And I think that's been a little frustrating for a lot of the people here. I know that there are several teams there on Maui to help with the evacuation and rescue efforts. I I think I saw that they brought in cadaver dogs recently. What's your organization's role in the overall effort? Yeah, yeah, so so we're a nonprofit. We're a nonprofit organization. We're we're entirely donor-funded. ProjectDynamo.org is our website. That's where people go to register their missing loved ones. That's also where people go to donate. We're also on social media. We got uh, Instagram and Facebook and and all that stuff. So we ask everyone to, to like us and share our stuff. Really important to share our stuff. It happens all the time where we get cases because somebody shared a post with somebody and it connected dots. It's really, really, really important for people to do that, especially on social media. We're not government. So the other teams that are here are FEMA, that you have Nevada Task Force One, you have USAR guys, you have some dudes from Washington that are running around. You know, but those are all government, right? Or, or you know, FEMA, FEMA sponsored and uh, paid for and everything else. We're not that. We're private. We're, okay. we're not for profit. We're just a bunch of special operations veterans and intelligence community veterans who are really good at getting into weird places with very little resources where it's hard and difficult and complicated and figuring it out until more resources show up, if they ever show up at all. When you talk about your team and the, and the skill set that they bring to an operation like this, what kind of equipment and background does your team bring that gives you that kind of advantage in this situation? All in, we have on my team here, we've got over 100 years of experience in a four-man team here on the ground from Army Special Operations, Navy Special Operations, the intelligence community, and some other skill sets. We all have a lot, a lot, a lot of time in different war zones, which is what these things kind of are. Yes, there was a natural disaster that caused this, but if you look at Mariupol, Ukraine, it looks a lot like Front Street, if that makes sense. So we're very, very, very accustomed to this kind of situation. For the people here, this is their first time. I've been in 15 countries this year that are not dissimilar than this. So learning how to do this 
as a first-time thing is a challenge. And mistakes get made and, and uh, challenges happen and all kinds of things. You know, we've been to the puppet show and we've seen the strings, if that makes sense. We can understand what, what's really hazardous, what might be hazardous. We understand the threat, the, the different kinds of threats and issues that are out there and how to mitigate those threats and issues. So we're really, really, really good at doing this sort of thing. And, you know, a small four-man team can really have an impact. And I'll put it in, pers- in perspective. Project Dynamo has rescued over 6,000 people in 23 months via boat, land, air, helicopters, Boeing 777s, we've broken people out of jail in Russia, all kinds of stuff. So just for perspective, a relatively small element can have a very, very, very large impact if they know what they're doing and are not restricted by bureaucracy. We hear many times in emergency situations when people are missing that the first 48 hours are the most important. Does that also apply to natural disaster situations like this? Absolutely. That's why speed is is the name of the game any leader, political or otherwise, who on the first day or two says anything about we have too much of anything is a mistake. If we had a thousand D-cell batteries on day one, the answer is we need 2,000. It doesn't matter what it is. These things are, time is of the essence and they're manpower intensive. So when this thing happened, the right answer in hindsight, and we have the benefit of hindsight, the textbook answer would have been put 20,000 guys on the ground and go combing through all this stuff, house to house, door to door, recognizing that most of those houses don't even exist anymore. But the idea that cadaver dogs are just now showing up and search and rescue dogs are just now showing up five days later, if you're an elderly woman who's a diabetic and you're trapped under a roof somewhere, you may have been able to survive two, two days or maybe even three. Five days, no food, no water in the sun, wounded and bleeding, you're not going to make it. So the speed of resources is the name of the game, even if that means those resources are duplicative in effort and step on each other. I would rather have five different teams check the same house and mark it five times than that house never get checked by anybody. And that's what happens with these things is people try and stay as organized as they can. And the reality is that you, you can't. And it, it really is about as much stuff on the ground as quickly as possible, very, very, very quickly. And then the response that you'll hear from people is, well, that's very hard. And then I, I always kind of reject that personally and laugh. And I go, well, if Project Dynamo can do it on a shoestring budget, how come you can't? So it can be done. It definitely can be done. So, you know, th- those are the hard questions that will happen. It's not about finger pointing or anything like that. It's really about learning from those mistakes. Last night, there was more fire on this island. Geronimo said, where there's one soldier, there's two soldiers. If it's happened once, it can definitely happen again on Maui or maybe on one of the other islands for that matter. We need to learn from the mistakes and learn to understand and and try and understand how this happened. You can't control Mother Nature and you can't really fight Mother Nature. You kind of have to take what she gives. But that doesn't mean we have to be spectators to it. There's probably a thousand military medics sitting on one of these army bases in Hawaii, right, that are 12 minutes away by helicopter. Every one of those medics should be sitting in Maui right now, every single one. Even if there's not a real need for them, at the very least, people who have lost everything, it sends a message of solidarity and hope. I do this for a living. These people have lost absolutely everything, everything. They, they got the clothes on their back. Most of them have lost family. Most of them have lost pets, all kinds of things. 
the mental part of this, the emotional part of this thing is just as important as the actual physical rescue part, frankly. So the message of solidarity of we are not alone, that, you know, the government is with you is so important to rebuilding. There's thousands of people right now whose, whose next steps in life are extremely uncertain. They didn't plan for this. Well, the best way to help people with that is as many organized professional resources everywhere, everything should be American flags and Hawaiian flags and, you know, we're not alone. And, and I think that in the case of Maui, I think it fell short a little bit. I mean, I'm looking out the window right now towards Lahaina and, you know, I don't see a big show of force with Chinooks flying in generators and refrigerators and pallets of water and all that stuff. I'm really seeing that. I see the community banding together, which is a good thing. But the community doing it themselves, they're alone. They're alone. And that's exactly what should not happen in these things. If there is somebody there on Maui who is still looking for their family member or friend or they're, they're very concerned for someone that has not been found yet, how does the public let you know that a family member is missing and, and how do they keep track of your efforts? So there's a few things they should do. Number one is go to projectdynamo.org and register on the website. Once the government pivots from rescue to recovery, meaning we're not looking for any more alive people, we're looking only for people who are deceased, DNA and those things, things change a little bit. But still a good idea to register on our website so we can track and see what we can do. The other thing is is register on the FEMA website, the Red Cross website. It's kind of the same thing. And register there. You can't register enough. You register on every single database that there are because it is a little disorganized. It's going to take a minute for everyone to get their hands wrapped around this thing. It's so big. So register with Dynamo. The other thing to do is to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and social media and share our stuff. happens all the time. Whereas we'll post something on Facebook, someone will see it, we'll share it, and we can unite a family. It happens all the time, especially overseas. It may happen here too. So follow us on, on all that stuff and share, share, share so important. It saves lives. It sounds crazy. And the third way people can help is to donate and help us if you can at projectdynamo.org. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Brian. Really appreciate your insight and your perspective on this. Great. Thank you so much. That was Project Dynamo's founder and CEO, Brian Stern, talking with Atreus Russell Subiono. We'll have a link uh, to that website where you can register for help to find a loved one on the conversation page of our website later today. The future economic impact of the wildfire devastation on Maui is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is your, your lead story. I mean, the yeah, the, the, the costs are just going to be staggering. Right. You know, we've heard from the governor and others that the, the total capital exposure, as they called it, really is the cost to rebuild is, is $5.5 billion. And I'm sure that figure is going to be in flux. But this one looks more specifically, our story from Jake Kandersky, at exactly what Maui is looking at losing because of the loss of all those properties, those residences, those businesses, the tax revenue 
that would be going to Maui County, which, of course, uh, that money will be needed. It's not just federal and state aid that's going to be helping out Hawaii, but county money. And Jake checked with um, with Calbert Young, who used to run budget and finance uh, and is currently is with the UH in the budget department there. He estimates, and by the way, I should say from Maui, <laughs> he estimates that the tax revenue loss could be at least $40 million, maybe higher, $60 million Plus, interestingly enough, uh, the the next uh, payment, property tax payments, is actually coming up in the next week or so. We, we have not heard from Maui County whether they're going to delay those payments, let alone uh, kill them altogether. Remember, these are property tax payments for property that has been destroyed, that really no longer exists. And there are so many businesses along Front Street, you know, that... Uh uh, really relied on the, the tourists uh, to come down there and, and help uh, with our, our uh, tax coffers. You know, I think the story talks about what we're losing a million dollars a day. That is, in that's correct. That's that's the estimate from the Department of Business, Economic and uh, Development and Tourism. One million dollars a day in visitor spending due to the Maui fa- the fires. Uh, property values in Lahaina alone, by the way, valued at about four billion dollars. But Again, if there's a, well, even going forward, once we get past this current deadline, I should say, by the way, at least one Maui County Council member told Jake that she didn't think that the, the county was going to try and, you know, impose this, uh, this, this tax on people right now. But, you know, going forward, the, the value of the, of the buildings will be zero because they don't exist anymore. And then, of course, the land value itself may, may depreciate considerably. Think about all the hazardous materials that we've been warned about there in Lahaina, but also upcountry, other places impacted by these fires. And, you know, generally for the counties, we rely on real property taxes to help with our operational costs. That's correct. It it is, in fact, the chief revenue uh, driver for the county. I know some people have been complaining, geez, we can spend all this money on Honolulu Rail. Well, that's, that's more complicated. That money is coming from a variety of sources. But but remember that we're also talking about the TAT, that, that's the transit accommodation tax. You know, if you're not in a hotel in, in West Maui, that TAT is, is not coming in, in into the coffers um, of the county. I should just say that the latest estimates, and some of this has been updated more recently, but we're talking about 2,700 structures on Maui exposed, meaning they got hit by fire. Most of those, about 2,200 damaged or destroyed entirely, about 2,200 acres uh, have been burned and 86 percent of those of those homes are classified as residential yes and you know early on in the week uh, last week uh, the governor did mention that hey if we need to call a special session to help maui maui county out um we will Uh, any word on that i think it's very likely we'll get uh, officially maybe an update today at 3 30 the governor along with Mayor Biss and, and others in Wailuku will update us on the latest. And I'm certain that question will, will be raised. And sure enough, it is the legislature that, that has to allocate the funds. We've seen them do it before. You remember the flooding in uh, upper uh, North Kauai, the, the, the North Shore of Kauai. Of course, that came during session, and they were able to get that money up there right away. But I, I'm sure that is being discussed right now to do that. The trick is, of course, is that they're not in session right now. Everybody's on different islands. And, you know, I think about the poor folks um, like Ellie Cochran and, and Angus McKelvey, who are the senator and representative there uh, in, in West Maui. But there is talk that that's happening, nothing official yet, but we are staying tuned for that. Right. And the counties normally also rely on the hotel room tax. 
And so if right. you've got, you know, fewer visitors uh, in that area, then, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, well, it definitely means much less money coming in. And uh, remember, you know, one example that Jake pointed out in his article is what happened in California about five years ago. Remember the Paradise Fire? Mm-hmm. That was in 2018. And what the state of California ended up doing, and this may be uh, a, a lesson or a, an instruction for Hawaii, was they they backfilled those late property taxes, the revenue. They had to eat it, if you will. But, of course, we also know that lawsuits uh, played a big role in what happened in California, particularly with the utilities companies there. So must to see as we go forward. Uh, we have people still on the ground in Maui, and we'll keep delivering reports to you all week and as, as long as it takes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Take care, Catherine. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read that story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, serving art experiences, live music, and dinner and beverages until 9 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays at Homa Nights. HonoluluMuseum.org. Electronic cigarettes, it's not just about tobacco anymore. Using these devices is not good for your health. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with experts about the recent legislative efforts about electronic cigarettes right here in the islands. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the islands since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. health officials tell us that the cleanup of toxic materials resulting from that fire in Lahaina will likely take weeks, if not months. HBR reporter Savannah Herman pope joins us with more on what returning residents can do to help keep themselves safe. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, I've been following this issue throughout the weekend as updates are coming out, and we're looking at cleanup in a couple of different stages. So over the next two weeks, teams led by the Environmental Prote- Protection Agency will work to remove obvious hazards, so propane tanks and those kinds of things from the area. But that's going to leave behind the majority of ash debris, which will contain several toxic contaminants. There's a high chance that many of Lahaina's older buildings, as we know, have lead paint or asbestos since the fire was built well, since the town was built well before the 1970s. And then arsenic is also a major concern. It was used as a herbicide on plantations in the 20th century. And these materials don't break down in fire. Mm. So many of them will still be present in ash and debris. They're not airborne, but if you are looking through the remnants of your home for lost belongings, you have the risk of them coming in contact with your skin or accidentally inhaling them. 
And I spoke with, I spoke with state toxicologist Diane Felton, who says you really do not want to come in contact with any of this stuff if you can avoid it. Children should not be in these areas right now. Um, is you know particularly in the burned areas there's just too many hazards these areas should be approached very carefully very cautiously and we have kind of limited information on what the exact timeline of cleanup is going to be at this moment we're taking a lot of cues from federal agencies and communities in other states that have been impacted by wildfires California and then Colorado is a major one as well I also spoke with Katie Arrington she's the assistant recovery manager at for Recovery and Resilience Division of Boulder, Colorado, uh, Boulder County in Colorado. And she's been working on coordinating recovery for the Marshall Fire, which about 18 months ago burned over 1,000 homes and businesses. And that was the most destructive fire in terms of structures in Colorado's history. So she has a sense of just what this takes. And she says it's going to take up to seven years for their community to fully rebuild. She thinks they're about a third of the way through. And their health officials also strongly advised against residents returning to the area in the immediate aftermath of the Marshall Fire. But she said that those type of types of health risks just really are the last things people have on their minds. They're more concerned with recovering what they can. That gives residents a sense of closure, sense of peace, finding something they thought they lost forever. It's, it's, it's just really devastating. And the sifting of someone's home Um, we found after the Marshall Fire brought a lot of peace peace to them. Grassroots efforts are going to do what they need to do to make people feel whole again. So just being being as safe as you can and as covered as you can is is the best I can offer. Yeah, and I was wondering when when they started to let people into that area, you know, to check on their homes, uh, you just worried about the protective gear that they were maybe wearing or not wearing. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So access in and of itself has been pretty touch and go. The county opened access to West Maui on Friday, and it was the first chance many evacuees had to return to the area since the fire broke out. The area of that front street strip of Lahaina that is barricaded off was not accessible. And um, there were concerns from Maui Police Department that too many people were accessing that area illegally, so they actually did shut that access down on Friday. But Felton says, you know, she understands why people have this need to go and see what has happened to their town. I completely understand people's need and desire to go and check on their homes, particularly if the status of their home or their business is unknown. Um, It's such an emotional issue. And, you know, I think that is a lot of the drive of why the area was opened up so um, abruptly um, was that, you know, people are just they need to know. So as of this morning, Maui County instituted a placard system for West Maui residents, many of whom are trying to get to family members who are past Lahaina, who have been cut off from access to essential services, may not have electricity, and then emergency responders. So you had to acquire a placard and present it in order to receive access into that part of town. And then we actually just got word that they have suspended that system again, Maui Police Department, because too many non-essential individuals and non-Maui residents have been requesting placards. So we don't have an update on to when access will be open to folks to access their family members or to see what has happened to their homes and businesses. Yeah, and you know, we heard uh, Hilton Rachel of the Healthcare Association, you know, just talk about that 
managing, you know, all the the uh, efforts, all those programs. Uh, it's tricky, you know, and, and, you know, they had to stand it up, and then you've got, you know, whole teams coming in and walking through those neighborhoods, you know, searching for bodies. So it's a real challenge, and, and, and yet, you know, I guess folks can't stress enough, you know, just you got to make sure that you're protected if you are in an area. Uh, Hilton mentioned that down at the harbor, right, the intense heat uh, just, you know, melted the uh, fiberglass, you know, mm -hmm. so is that stuff still swirling around? And that's not the kind of thing you want to get in your lungs at all. Absolutely. All health officials that I spoke to said that if you do not need to be in this area, do not go into this area. And if you do need to be in this area, please try to cover up as much as possible. Closed-toed sho shoes, steel-toed boots are best lawn sleeve shirts, pants, gloves, and goggles as possible, as well as a mask. A, a surgical mask will help, and N95 is best. But for folks who evacuated their homes quickly, that might not be material that is easy to find. When I talked to Felton, she said that at this point, full PPE of that kind is not being provided in shelters. They are distributing some masks, but primarily because of the concern of COVID-19 in close quarters. Things like goggles, gloves, she says there are other concerns that are top of mind now, and that's going to have to wait. Right, uh, but uh, obviously yeah, folks need to be as prepared uh, as they can be, just because you don't want to have anyone end up in the hospital, you know, uh, getting hurt in, in these areas, and you just don't know what's flying around out there. And, you know, when we talked to um, uh, Chip Fletcher uh, last week about, you know, what could happen. We're still in hurricane season. If we get a hurricane this way and we get lots of rains, we could get some of that stuff, you know, um, discharging into the ocean, onto the reefs. You know, the Coast Guard, I know, is working very hard uh, in the harbor area. You know, hopefully they've got, you know, booms uh, up and, and set up around there. But, yeah, we've just got to keep our fingers crossed that we don't have a big deluge Absolutely. to sweep all this out. Absolutely. And Katie Arrington offered a glimmer of hope. She said that in the monitoring they did after the Marshall Fire, a lot of these contaminants, contaminants did dissipate and leave the environment, but they did set up extensive soil monitoring as, where, as well as air quality monitoring, particularly around areas where children would be, um, schools and other communal environments, just really to give people that peace of mind that their town was safe to be in. When I talked to Felton about this, she said that they are looking into those types of tests, and EPA, the EPA is really going to be organizing both state, state staff as well as Department of Health staff to try to get that testing on the ground. But again, access is so touch and go, and the area is continually, we're continually getting information about new hazards that might be present. Well, and then there's just the fact that we still have um, these wildfires going, right? And so if you are challenged and your lungs are fragile, you really do need to stay indoors and, you know, keep the masks on and whatever it takes just to, to make sure that you're safe because mm -hmm. the air quality is not good. One last thing that I'll say is there are water advisories in place for Lahaina and areas of Maui that were affected. So if you are in a home that was standing but was impacted by the wildfires, please do not drink the water, not even if it's boiled. Maui County has released maps as to where the water is safe and not safe to drink available on their website. Right. Really important for folks to know whether you're a resident or a visitor in that area. But thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. We've been talking to HR Savannah Harriman Pote. Uh, she's reminding us about the precautions to take as people uh, return to the burnt out areas in Lahaina.
school schedules are being phased in for Maui uh, students who were affected by the wildfire. Uh, Department of Education officials have been scrambling to coordinate schedules as some teachers and students may have been left homeless by Maui's wildfires. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. You've been talking with a number of people all week. Yeah, it's been um, kind of a hectic week, but it's nothing compared to what the folks on Maui are experiencing. We're here on Oahu and we're trying our best to reach out to these folks who have been impacted by these wildfires. And what did you find out? So far, there are over 50 teachers have been who have been displaced from their homes or suffered damages from the Maui wildfires. And I found that out from the Hawaii State Teachers Association, that is the State Teachers Union for the Department of Education. They sent an internal survey to Maui colleagues last week. On Friday, at least 20 teachers lost their homes entirely to the fires and at least 20 more suffered damages. Nearly 10 reported their classrooms were burned down and 20 survey respondents reported needing help finding temporary housing while 10 needed help finding long-term housing. So you can kind of see that number. It was from Friday, but it's probably have grown from then. Yeah, just tragic. So I spoke with a first grade teacher. Her name is Mindy Cherry. She actually taught at the King Kamehameha Third Elementary School. On Friday, she returned uh, to her home and to her neighborhood to find it in ruins. So when she came to her home, all that was left was just rubble and ash. There was in the, fi the picture that she sent me, there were at least two kind of cement structures that kind of indicated that was the entrance to her home. That was the only thing that was left standing. Um, and when she was trying to find her wedding ring, all she found was ash. And when she stopped by the her first grade classroom, this is what she found. It's completely gutted. It's unusable. All of the portables are gone. All of the classrooms, the windows are all blown out. So I just feel like the DOE is probably still trying to figure out what to do about that situation as well and figure out who left island who's still here which teachers are here so there hasn't been a lot of communication um even like to find out if we have had school or not you know there wasn't a call out but we couldn't get anyway so like you know like we were getting emails but it's hard to also check your email it's so awful and this is just last week too uh Maui fires is nothing new to a lot of residents, especially for Mindy Cherry and her family. Mindy has been living in her home for about 13 years with her husband, three children, and her three dogs. And what's left of her house, all of the baby pictures, baby books, the family photos are gone, the sentimental items, that wedding ring she really wanted to to grab. But in the moment, the first thing is grab your loved ones, grab all your sensitive document and leave and everything else. You can come back. And here is exactly what she found with her fireproof vault that she found going home. So we were really looking for that. And then we had a safe that we did have some cash in. And as we were trying to leave quickly, it wouldn't open. So we changed the battery in it. And then my husband was trying to fix the wiring, but it wouldn't work. So we were hoping that the safe, it was fireproof, we were hoping the safe would still be intact. It was there, but it had exploded open, so all of its contents were gone. My gosh, that's just incredible. The heat then, huh? Wow. Yeah, and this is a fireproof vault. So when she told me that, it, w it must have been that hot to the point that it exploded open, including all of those contents, the cash, or just emergency funds are all gone. And so 
Mindy Cherry was lucky. She was in, uh, able to escape the fire um, with her family. They're currently in Wailea staying at someone's house. She says she plans to be there until the end of August after that. She has no idea what's next. And this is the same predicament that a lot of teachers are in. A lot of them are confused about do we rebuild uh, in our home or will we still have a job after this? And a lot of them haven't even heard from their students because last week, what school just started on August 7th, but for the Maui schools, a lot of them was more of like a, a work teacher day kind of thing. So students didn't even start school yet. Wow. So it, it's a lot to process, not just your personal loss, but then, you know, seeing those classrooms that were you know, ready to welcome students, and now there's just, like, nothing there? It was really sad. I actually, it's not on the web story, but she did send me a photo of uh, the classroom that she would have been teaching at, and it was the before photo. She took it in May, and you can just imagine, like, being a teacher, you're excited for your students, and students are excited to come learn. You got the ABC mat, everything's in colors, and now it's all gone, and for that century-old school, the Kamehameha Third Elementary School. She sent me a photo of that. The structure is still there, but everything is just blown out. There's no more classroom. It was charred from the fence to the cement structure to the roof. So it's just completely unusable. And um, yeah, that was um, that was heartbreaking to see. And you talked to other other folks as well? I did. I actually spoke to another teacher who was actually lucky that his house is still intact because he lives in Wailuku, but he taught at that elementary school that burned down. His name is Justin Huey. He's been teaching at the Kamehameha the Third School elementary school for nearly 20 years, and wildfires are really nothing new to him. If you recall, back in Hurricane Lane, there were um, a series of fires during that time. So Maui has always been impacted by wildfires and particularly Lahaina and Kihei always had close calls. And so they've been raising the concerns and they had their own kind of evacuation, unofficial evacuation policy in place on how to deal with this. But luckily the kids weren't in school during that time because you can only imagine what that might've been to scramble to get students back to their families or teachers back to their families. Um, and for Justin Huey, um, since wildfires are nothing new to him, he pointed out that most public schools are resuming this week while Lahaina schools remain closed. And here's what Justin had to say. Everyone on this side is supposed to go back Monday, but everyone's like, everyone's panicking because they're like, why are we going to go to school when this is happening? And there's people without food, without water, without shelter. So like, honestly, I think the DOE needs to forget about learning right now because without this huge amount of people on the west side, without food, shelter, or water, that's the main focus. You, you can't really collect yourself and do your job or, or learn anything if you have family members that are displaced. And it 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 is... Um... I, I can only imagine how hard it can be for students to learn in this environment or for teachers to teach in this environment. And I also spoke with another teacher um, who actually, she um, left Maui to be on Kauai. She was able to escape the Lahaina fire with her dog. And right now she told me via email, she has no idea if she wants to go back to teaching. She's trying to get situated. So she's in this mindset to where 
when uh, when am I going to go back to work? And so on Sunday, the teachers union unanimously approved allocating $150,000 to Maui disaster relief for teachers who lost their homes and their classrooms to the wildfires. And the teachers union has already set up donations on their page. There are at least 24 teachers with their GoFundMe page and Venmo accounts that are mm. posted on there. And then what does the DOE say? Because um, I know they, they put out some information on Friday. They did. And so just yesterday, the um, the superintendent, Keith Hayashi, he put out a letter to the teachers on Twitter, and he said all of the teachers and faculty who lost their homes, they will still, um, they will be on um, administrative leave until further notice. They will still have their jobs. And so they're encouraging um, teachers and students to relocate to other schools uh, across Maui. Yeah, and that's going to be a real challenge trying to coordinate that, you know, where do all these students go? And then when you think of how many of those families may have lost their homes as well. So yeah, a very sad situation, but thank you, Cassie. Thanks for having me. We've been uh, talking to HBR's Cassie Hordonio about the snapshot in our schools. Uh, look for her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. But tomorrow we plan to hear about mental health care as we collectively deal with the trauma of this natural disaster. Call our talkback line 808-792-8217 to share your stories. Want to listen back to something you heard today? Find the Conversation podcast uh, at most places where you tune in for your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.